this morning I would like to share with you a passage that might give us a little encouragement and fuel for the upcoming week as, as we celebrate across the nation um, Thanksgiving, a, a holiday that is, um, that is is in large part American and as a result kind of the heartbeat of who we are. Every time we get together we have a great big meal and, and we, we like to, to make sure that, that, that we invite all the friends and family around and so I wanted to, to explore a passage of Scripture, and as I prayed about it, this is, this is what emerged for us to consider this morning. So if you will turn, to me, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're looking for the verse number 12, and we're going to read all the way down to 22. So when you find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 12, if you would stand in honor of God's Word. The scripture reads this way. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that when we come to Scripture, we are always reminded that there is a higher and a better way that we who believe ought behave. And an invitation for those who do not yet believe to, to be transformed and changed into changing their life in such a way that their behavior would change. I pray that as we come to this Scripture that we would see ourselves ever changed by what the Word says. And when we cannot, Lord, that we would seek your mercy and your grace to find patience as we, as we seek to find ourselves aligned with you and you alone. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you know anything about the books, the two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, then you understand that, that Timothy's come back to Paul and he's given his testimony about a church, specifically this church and this church has give, been given a, a, a powerful, powerful bit of praise from Timothy to Paul. And Paul writes to them and he talks to them about this, the situation they're in. The praise that he gives them tells us that they are, they are having an outstanding witness in the midst of a very chaotic world, including accusations against them for, for, for who they are, but they stand the test because they, they measure up. And so here's something that before we even look at the passages that, that I have already read this morning, I would, I would just hope to ask this question of us. And that is when other people report about our church, about this group of believers, do they tell them that we measure up to what this book says we should be and, and how we should behave? If, if the answer is yes, then great. But we all know we have a little work to do. We all know that there are areas where we could be just a little bit better, amen? And so as we look to this, when we get to the end of the book, and it's kind of weird for me to hop in at the end of a letter, 
And that's what these letters are, is that he's written to a group of people in a church, and he's, he's discussing with them their current situations and things to expect. And he begins to talk in chapter 5 about the chaotic ending, right? The day of the Lord. And he begins to tell them, he says, things are going to spin out of control. But when they do, know that you don't have permission to behave anyway other than biblically. So I want you to look at your neighbor and say, you're supposed to behave biblically. Now, we all know that we like correction about as much as we like cod liver oil when we weren't well. And so when we get corrected, oftentimes we have a hard time. But I will tell you that if we correct people in love, then we should be counted as friends for certain. We look to this bit of, of Scripture, and he gives this, this opening statement. And I, and I just, verses you know, 12 and, and 13, and then at the very end, I'll have very little to say on them, but, but we'll just basically touch them very briefly, and it's kind of the heartbeat that we'll get into the list that he gives us. Verse 12 says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now, that is all about the leadership that's placed in this situation in this church, and he's talking about it very briefly, and I told you I'm just going to touch it real, real basically here. But isn't it good that God knows that the church is organized in such a way that there will be some people that will have some insight and some leadership that he's invited into that work and, and that we ought to be in partnership with them in order to, to make everything go, go peacefully because that's the next statement, that we should be peaceful in our midst. So we should be looking to organizing ourselves into a structure that makes sense and then we should find peace and harmony in our midst. And that doesn't seem so awful, does it? I don't know about you, but depending on which side of the, of the, the aisle you were on last night, you, you might have looked out and you might have thought to yourself, one team has a good organization and the other one doesn't, right? And some of you are like, Brother Ben, you cannot go there today. <laughs> oh, I'm going there, okay? Some of us were like, doesn't look like there's any organization and like there's nobody at home and who's running the thing? And the other side is like, man, we have it all together and we've got it organized. At the end of things in our world, when the Lord's Day comes, isn't it going to be very important for everybody to look around and say, the whole world is turned on its ear, but you know, there's one group of people that doesn't seem to be affected by it? The church. They're organized and it makes sense and they're peaceful with each other and there's harmony and they're not, they're not, they're not infighting or they're not problem causing and they're not divided all the time? Wouldn't that be something if that was the testimony today and forever and we're practicing right now for as things become less stable because if you've read the book, you know you don't expect things to become better before they become worse. Well, he goes into this and he just basically says, you have organization, you should be grateful for that work and as a result, you should be peaceful. And that's the very last statement in verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. And then he goes in the list, and this is where I want to spend the lion's share of this morning. And so I, have, I know some of you look down at your bullets and you're like, he has nine things on here. They're going to be one or two word things, and I'm going to talk about each of them briefly. Verse number 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. So word number one is warn. Warn. 
Did you realize, did you know that as a believer in Jesus, that somebody who has an open and ongoing relationship with Jesus, that one of the things that we are challenged to do by the scriptures is to be, to be kind of a, a, a touch point for the world around us, to tell people the thing that you're doing is devastatingly bad. It's bad for you and it's bad for other people. And I could talk about all kinds of sinful stuff in the world. And, and I will tell you, people, will, it'll come up. And one of the things that, that is hard for me is that some things are transforming and the expectation is transforming all around us. And we're doing our best not to, to bend to culture, but to bend ourselves to scripture so that we line up with God and not with the world around us. But that being said, even the church is having a hard time. I can remember being in seminary and the conversation was, was the, the, the party lines were being drawn. Those who held traditional Southern Baptist views and those who were more, more flexible with their, the way that they viewed things like alcohol and other things like this. And I remember that the debate was, was all this theology was, was bubbling up and all these people were talking about all this stuff. And it was a handful of years later as I was a pastor when I stood by the casket of a man who was killed by a drunk driver. And you know what I will tell you? The Bible is right about what it tells us is wrong about it. It's right about it. And we got to stop telling the Bible that we can theology it out of the equation. And we need to line up with the Bible, and we need to warn things that are unruly. And I, I'm here to tell you, people are like, man, Brother Ben, this is uncomfortable. Let me warn you. The Bible has told us that if we are careless with certain things, that they will damage and destroy the world around us. It tells us that we ought to be those people. It makes us real unpopular come Christmas and Thanksgiving when, when those times of the year when things get real comfortable. But I'm going to tell you something. It tells us to warn people that are unruly. Man, I know it got quiet in here. Brother Ben went there. You know, I was asked when they interviewed me, they said, will you preach on hard things? I will absolutely preach on hard things. It tells us right here that when things in our world get chaotic, that we ought to be a place where people can come and get a little input about why things are so bad in their life. And we say, hey, here's a strong warning. If you continue to behave in this manner, bad things are coming. I'll never forget it. We were, as a mission team, we were on the beach at South Padre Island. This is this is no joke, one of the craziest mission trips I've ever been on. We were accused of it being a vacation. I assure you that anybody went there with us knew that it was warfare. And we were there for the purpose of trying to lead college students, and I talk about it a lot. But one of the neat things was is that uh, Buddy Young, the guy that had started it, man, almost 40 years ago, said about this, he said that it was so crazy that one year that they had a big concert that was going to be on the beach that night and that they were standing out there and they're witnessing to people that are on their way to the concert. And he says and people would stop and make decisions to follow Jesus. And they would kneel right there in the sand on the beach and their, their knee prints would be their first step into eternal relationship with Jesus because they were basically said that our whole purpose was to stand on the beach like a warning sign saying, the road in front of you is out. Warning. Danger. And it would say unruly behavior. You know, I, I, I looked at these things and I, I realized that we talk about this. But the Apostle Paul tells the church in Thessalonica the very first thing that they need to be, they need to be cognitive of once they're at peace with each other is they need, to be, they need to be looking around the world and they need to be warning people. Now, there's a difference in warning and judgment, isn't there? I'm not telling you to judge your relatives or your friends and family. 
or to, to, to be the self-appointed fruit inspector. You guys know what that is? Okay. And I one time heard about this corn in, in, in Missouri, and the, and the inspector's looking at the corn, and he gives it a, a sub-perfect rating, but he never gave a perfect rating. And sometimes, you know, he just was asked about it. He goes, he goes, I didn't find any worms in my inspection, but trust me, by the time it gets where it's going, there's going to be some worms in it. And he says, how do you know that? He goes, because every time I've ever given it a perfect rating, by the time it gets where it's going, there's worms in it. And it's like this, this crazy thing where it's like, but man, as the, as the person, you're like, but I want the perfect rating. He's like, just because I don't see the evidence doesn't mean there's not imperfections. And the hard part for us is that oftentimes we become self-appointed fruit inspectors and what we don't see is our own flaws. We say, I don't see any worms, but other people looking at us are like, you got worms. I've seen it. But man, we can sure see everybody else's, can't we? But he tells us that we ought to do this at a position of peace where we ought to be saying, hey, this is dangerous. You need to be careful. You need to, you need to find yourself no longer unruly. Well, it goes right today. He, he says comfort. This is number two. That's the second word, the faint-hearted. This time of year, this time of year, comfort is something that the world around us is lacking. It's so bad that things like suicide skyrocket between now and the end of January. Let me give you a little advice. As a pastor, you know somebody, pick up your phone and invite them to your place, even if it's just going to be the two of you. Call them and check on them. Make sure they're okay. This is a hard time of year. I, I read a post from a friend on social media that talked about that, and she's had tons of heartache, and, and, I, and I don't want to make light of, of her situation or make her an illustration, but to say this, bad, more bad news was on the horizon, and she, her comment was, we have just got done celebrating all the firsts without one family member, and now we're preparing ourselves to, to look at all the firsts or the lasts with another family member. And I thought to myself, what a broken heart that I have for them. And I thought, we ought to be people that, as, as an organization that are about comforting other people. And you look to people and you say, how can I be comforting to you? Best advice I was ever given in my whole life. Uh, something personal in my own life had happened and I was talking to a professor and I said, I don't know what to say. I said, I'm hurting for them and I don't know what to say to them. And he looked right at me and he said, say that. And so I did. I went to my loved one and I said, you know, I, I, and you guys are going through a hard thing. And I said, man, I'm hurting for you. And I don't know what to say. You don't have to have a magic answer to comfort somebody. But you do have to be present. The phone call, the text message, the, the reaching out, the small little bitty thing that you can do this time of year. And it's necessary and it's needed. You know, 2 Corinthians, beautiful passage, and I've shared it at many funerals. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, we receive comfort from God and we are able to turn around and offer it to somebody else, not just for some trouble, but for any trouble. You may not have gone through what they're going through, but your words of comfort might still be the thing. Comfort the faint-hearted. Be part of this process. 
If our church could be the, the culmination of these things, where we warn unruly people and we comfort faint-hearted people, man, that'd be a huge step forward, wouldn't it? If you felt better after you had engaged with the people of our church, because these are just a couple of the things to expect. But that's not the whole list, is it? It goes on to say, uphold the weak. Man, faint-hearted is not the same thing as weakness, right? Oftentimes, our culture, we feast on obliterating the weak. If you don't believe me, don't listen to anybody that's running a victory lap after last night. We talk about obliterating things that are weak, and we celebrate it. We're kind of a, a war culture that invites into making fun of the, 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 the lesser vessel and, and having someone in our group that we mock or or being a part of, of making light of and joking about all these things. Uh, but, but the scriptures teach us a completely different model, don't they? Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The Bible tells us that when we look at anybody else, we ought to automatically see them as better than us. That's a different story, isn't it? Not as though you had something to offer somebody, but instead that you come from a position where all you have is to be able to serve somebody. The next time you see a person that's homeless or the next time you see a person that's in need or the next time you see something that's, that's happening, think to yourself about how I could esteem somebody, how I could uphold the weak. I'm telling you, this instruction for the chaotic coming of the Lord and the way the world seems like it's ever off kelter and, and more, more under, under attack. There's these moments when people like you and me, we are the only difference in the world that makes any difference. We're the only organization in the world that offers people a relationship with a God who's already done something for them. You realize that's what it is? You get to offer somebody a relationship with a God that's already paid an unbelievable price. That's what we get to be in partnership to do. Why do I go to church? Because, man, it's the organization that I joined where we get to offer a relationship with a God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And as a result, I am out here and I am upholding the weak because people are looking for strength in all the wrong places. And it goes on in the, in the passage, and like I said, just to move at, at some kind of pace here. Uphold was word number three, and word number four is patient. Be patient with all. And now this one. This one I need. I need this one in a big way. You will ask that there are, you know, angles by which you could see your pastor, just like there are angles by which he could see you or you could see each other, right? Uh, let me ask you the question. When you're with people in public and you're patient with them, but when you go home and you have no patience with your family, that's inconsistent. I'm a testimony in that sometimes my patience is run out by the time I get home, right? And I'm not alone. I mean, we are in church, don't lie. 
but he tells us that we ought to be a people of patience. Uh, a famed football coach of historic legend one time gave a powerful speech, and he talks about this, where he says, we oftentimes will offer complete strangers the very best of our character and behavior, and then we'll go home and offer our family who we see every day and for longer amounts of time the worst of our character. And he goes, and that seems like that's backwards. Care oftentimes about what other people think instead of the people that are around us. I told a man one time that we were, we were dealing with some struggles in his family, and he was, he was, he had a very broken relationships. And I know nobody in here probably can identify with that because we're all perfect, right? But some very broken relationships in his family. And I just paused because he always liked to talk about what he had. And I said, man, you know, of all the things that you have, I said, if you had the love and adoration of your children, you'd be the wealthiest man in the world. And he kind of stopped and paused and I just pleaded with him I said reconcile with your children plead with them I wish I could say that he took my advice but I tell you again that same advice this is a time of the year when we ought to be reconciling with people as much as humanly possible because the absence of people because of heartache and because of, of disagreement is ever more present around the holiday season James tells us that patience should have its perfect work, that we might be perfect, and as a result, wanting nothing. And the word perfect typically in Scripture oftentimes leans into a lane of mature, because we know you're not perfect. Come on, that's funny. Look right at your neighbor and say, I know you're not perfect. Somebody's out there sitting by themselves, and they're like, I'm glad I don't have to say it to anybody else. But the picture here for us is that we understand that patience is working perfection in us, maturity in us, and that we ought to have it not with some people. It says with all people. Man, that's, a, that's medicine, right? Not all medicine tastes good, does it? Verse 15 starts this way. See that no one renders, and, and word number five is render. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Man. There's a passage, and I, I got an opportunity to share with a, a high school group in Coons, Texas, several months ago now. And I went in, and they wanted me to do this deep dive on, on kind of the, the passages in James. And they told me I could any passage in James I want to talk about. But as I got in there, I began to, you know, really dissect the, the date and really dissect the audience and really dissect some of the meanings and, and why it impacted the change or, or a, a, a shading on the, the letter in such a way that maybe crystallized its meaning. But there's this really interesting passage which might be the least, like, I have rights kind of passage when it comes to, to, to being aggressive in the world around me. And there's this, this beautiful passage where it says that the righteousness of God is not demonstrated in the wrath of man. And I remember looking at that group of high school students and said, this might be the least Texas passage in all the Bible. I mean, Texas prides itself on the Alamo and come and take it and, and, and you know, 
you, you drive across the state line, and it's like they're selling pickups and guns. I mean, you can have all of it, and, 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 you know, and I don't have any problem with pickups or guns. But the Scripture teaches us that the righteousness of God is not demonstrated in our wrath. And the Bible tells us that there's this rendering of evil that we're supposed to see that no one offers to anyone else. We want justice so badly without giving any concern or thought to whether or not it be right or righteous to give it. That it might be evil and it might feel just, but it might be wicked. Some punishments gratify our desire for justice but have no righteousness in them. And the scripture tells us that in a chaotic world, that we ought to be these people who make sure that rendering evil for anyone is wrong. Man, that'll change, that'll change the way you look at the world around you, won't it? Especially when you see things that go wrong and things that are bad. I oftentimes am asked, and so I remember that a guy came to me right after I got done sharing that verse, and he's like, so does that mean? And I was like, no, it does not mean that, that our amendments are broken. But let me tell you something. Our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, are not more powerful or more binding in my life than this book. And if I don't use those documents that were given to me by our forefathers as a servant and a slave to this text, then I'm wrong already. So I'll pursue this first, and I will enjoy the fact that I have the other. And I'll see that I can line them up wherever I can. And where I cannot, I'll serve this book first. And I'll be thankful as a result that I get to have that right. We see it here, though. We see it. It continues. But always pursue what is good for both yourself and for all. And, And it's interesting how he goes from not rendering evil to anyone, then he's like, but pursue what's good. And then he says for yourself, and he kind of puts you in there first. And I, and I love this, because this actually, it, it works really well, you know, obviously in the greater context and the scripture, and we, we see this picture painted. And we, we understand that one of my passages that I talk to people about is, is that when they're trying to deal with relationships or trying to sort out how to treat somebody that's in a situation. And I always say, well, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And they're always like, oh, okay, what does that mean? Well, that means that you have to love yourself a little bit. Sometimes we have a hard time loving our neighbor because we don't like ourselves at all. But the funny thing about that is, is that you may not like yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror or when you get dressed, or you might not like yourself whenever you think about the way that you acted and behaved, and you may not like yourself when you think about the failed opportunities or, or missed, missed things that, that have come up in your life. You, you may have this very poor opinion of yourself. Man, it makes it hard to love other people when you think poorly of yourself, at least to do it well, Right? But also, it makes it hard for you to understand what God sees in you that's redeemable. Because when God looked down from heaven, he saw you. And he decided to save you. Because he finds value. And that he doesn't want us to seek good for everybody else, but nothing for ourselves. 
I mean, some of you will be sitting at Thanksgiving, and you'll be thinking about seconds, but you'll be like, but has anybody else had seconds? And you're like, well, see, good for myself. That last crescent roll disappears to say, Brother Ben said so. And then it says also for other people. But, but you see the picture? You, you see how all of these things are building. This warning and comfort and upholding and being patient and, and rendering and pursuing. How these things are, are working together. It's kind of like all the ingredients in the cake. You know, one time, my mother, and she's here today, my mother tasked us, me, I, I want to say it was me and my sister, but it could have just been me, and she probably remembered that it was just me because it's embarrassing, but I went to make these cookies. And how many of you like to make cookies? Okay, how many of you like to eat cookies? The number probably is bigger. Okay, okay. When you go to make cookies, you should have all the ingredients. And I remember that there was something precarious happening, and we're supposed to make these cookies, and I think mom was intending to send them to my brother or something like that. And I remember that something had put my mom into kind of a, let's just say she wasn't very happy with me. So I didn't want to ask her for anything because I had done something deserving probably of her full wrath. When I go to make the cookies, there are no eggs. Oh, some of you went, oh, immediately. You're like, no. Oh. Tell me that you did not make the eggless cookies, and I will tell you I made the eggless cookies. You want to know how they were? No, you're like, no, don't, don't. They were as hard as a rock. If you leave eggs out of cookies, they will be as hard as a rock, at least these cookies. And I remember my dad ate one, and my dad looked at me and goes, what is wrong with the cookies? And I was like, there were no eggs. And he was like, why didn't you ask your mom for eggs? And I was like, she was mad. And he goes, you probably are right to make bad cookies. <laughs> we, we get this picture that the ingredients have to all mix together in the right proportion in order for the, for the recipe to come out. And we're getting towards the give thanks part. But if you want to show up on Thursday and just offer thanks, but you're not any of the rest of this, it's going to seem kind of trite and kind of coming up short and like a hard cookie. It's going to not make sense. It goes on to say rejoice, right? Verse number 16, rejoice always. And I love this word in the scriptures, but mostly because of the picture and because of the times we sing it in hymns and songs. And, and, and I love because it kind of foreshadows what's going to happen all throughout the month of December. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, it says, when, the when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And there's this picture of, of this moment of people seeking for something that is promised by the Bible, coming to truth. And as a result, the joy that wells up in them is celebration. And I don't know about you, but one of the worst points of, of, of contention in all of church life is when you show up and everybody looks like a bulldog that's been fed a lemon. Can you make the face of a bulldog where you kind of put your bottom lip up over your top lip? lip? And then imagine having a lemon in there so your eyes squint just a little bit. Sometimes you show up to some churches and that's what you're greeted with. They're like, we're so happy for you to be here. But where is the joy Where's the rejoicing? Where's the excitement? Where's the anticipation? Where's the thrill of knowing that just because the world is falling apart that we know how it ends and we understand how to get you out of this mess and I want to offer it to you so I got joy. 
And some of you are, are probably low, and you're like, I just don't know, Brother Ben, this time of year. I would suggest this, that if you cannot find joy in what you're seeking currently, if the things that you're currently doing aren't bringing you any joy whatsoever, maybe it's because you're seeking the wrong things or at least the wrong things in, in the wrong places. And I would suggest far too often that our pursuits are fruitless because we're seeking something we think will bring us joy, a bigger paycheck or a, a larger bit of property or the nicer car or the, the whatever. Man, joy is finding out that you don't have to have control of any of it. That the story that's been told is already laid in, in place in such a way that we just get to grab a hold and run alongside it. I mean, when the wise men saw that star, they were like, the road map is laid out. Let's just follow it. Isn't it so cool that the Lord God gave us a road map to follow and we would just follow alongside of it? It would be so much joy. But instead, there are churches from coast to coast, north to south, that their chief membership is made up of bulldogs sucking on lemons. When you walk through the door, you're like, I can see why they don't want to come to church on Sunday. When you say, you should be in church. Man, you know, it's a lot more contagious when you're like, I can't wait to go to church. I'm so excited to be there. I want to celebrate with all my friends. I can't imagine being anywhere else. And you're like, come with me. Instead of saying, well, it's our duty and our obligation, and you should do it because the Lord said so. Which one sounds more appealing, right? Get in the van. I was one time told by a lady that she was part of, that all of her children were drug children, and I was like, oh, my. And she was like, yeah, I drug them all to church. So how'd that work out later? Number eight, it says pray without ceasing. And if you were wondering how often you ought to pray, always. Just always. And there's all kinds of beautiful passages in Scripture that talk about prayer. And Jesus oftentimes finds himself retreating for, for long matter and time of prayer. And there's prayer is the benchmark of, of every good thing. One of the reasons that I love King David is because every time he goes to battle, he talks to God first about whether or not God wants him to go to battle. And when God tells him to go to battle, I cannot find a record. Now, somebody might find it, and I'll tell you, it's a big book, so I could have missed it. I cannot find one instance where he takes an army onto the field of battle and loses. Now, his personal life was a wreck. Okay, I'm not trying to excuse him for any of the negative stuff. But I will tell you that on the battlefield, King David won battles. Why did he win battles? Because he went to God first. You know, if we want to win these battles in front of us and have joy while we're doing it, maybe we ought to pray a little more. You know, some things are going to transform at our church over the course of the next couple months, and we're looking forward to some of the changes, and we're already making plans to do some things differently. Sunday nights, as we begin to bring Sunday nights back together, one of the things that your pastor hopes to inc incorporate is a, a, a concerted time of prayer in that worship service where we will give you some specific things to pray about. And you'll be welcome to pray for anything else too, but we'll drive that because we don't, we don't just believe, we know that if we learn to pray, that we will line up with God a whole lot more frequently and stop having to ask him. You know, I, in my prayers this week, I, I just, just stopped and I said, God, 
I'm doing it wrong again, aren't I? And he's, you know, and, and people, you're like, you talking to yourself, brother? And yes, probably, but also to God. And I was like, here I am again, asking you to join me instead of me to join you. I think a lot of times we do that in church, don't we? Where we have a good idea and we run out and we're like, hey, God, will you bless this? Instead of saying, God, what do you want us to do? And then him saying, go do this, and my blessing is waiting on you. Pray. Pray without ceasing. And then we get to number nine, and I know that the, kind of the, the, the last one in our list this morning, and it's give thanks. I know that's two words, right? It says, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. People always say, oh, no, no, what, what's God's will? Have you ever heard anybody say that? I know some real, you know, philosophical beings in my life, and I love them. But they're always like, I, I want to know what the will of God is for my life. And I'm always like, well, it says right here, the will of God is to give thanks. Your page numbers are different than mine, but 1,450. Right there. So what's the will of God for my life? Stop and give him thanks. Don't know what else to do? Give thanks. Corey Ten Boom demonstrated this. Corey Ten Boom is a phenomenal case study in how to behave and how to follow Christ. Her book, The Hiding Place, if you've not read it, you can find a used copy for less than $5 on Amazon, thrift books, anywhere else. I recommend it. You probably want to know what Corey Timboom said. Well, Corey Timboom was part of a family that harbored people that were running from the Nazis. And they had this place in their home that they had carved out a space and made a faux wall and hid people in it. And that's what's called the hiding place, right? In that story, eventually that falls apart and they're arrested and they're taken into custody. And, and not to, to give the whole story away because you're going to run out and get a copy and read this, right? They're in a barracks right next to the entry-level barracks where people are coming into this concentration camp. And it's the one that people are being tortured in almost as a warning to the rest of the camp not to get out of line. Well, through the course of their time there, which is extensive, they are shuffled from one barracks to another. And when they got there, Corey, Corey becomes distraught because the, the straw bedding that they are given to lay on is infested with fleas. And she is morose. She is, she is distraught, and she's, she's moved to this place where she is upset about the fleas. And her sister, who just happens to still be with her, is like, I found the answer. It's right here. We should give God thanks. And so they're praying. And in her prayer, she starts to thank God for the fleas. And Corey is like, I do not agree. Anybody ever have anything that's irritating in your life that you can't agree to give thanks for? But her sister is fervent on the matter. The Bible says everything. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. Thank God for the fleas. Well, in the course of their time there, they had smuggled in with them a little Bible. And they had actually, there were people from all over Europe that are in this camp with them. And because there's just enough people there that know just enough languages, that the Bible lessons that they want to share with people can be shared from one end of the room all the way around the circle back to them in their own language because there's enough people there that know their language and another one. And this Bible study goes on and on without interruption, even though 
day after day, soldiers are torturing other people, soldiers are doing something. They're working their work terms and they're doing stuff, but the Bible study is never interrupted. And come to find out sometime later that the single reason that none of the guards ever came in to interrupt anything that was happening in their barracks was because of the fleas. And that God might just use a, a, an irritation to you to keep you safe from a greater harm. And you might need to learn to give God thanks for absolutely everything. That's his will. What have you given him thanks for? This week we'll have the opportunity to sit around large tables of food and hopefully with friends and family and, and maybe not your setting. That might not be what you're looking forward to. But, but most of us. And you'll wonder, what should I be thankful for? And if this church doesn't send people to those tables and just say, God, we thank you for absolutely everything. Man, it'll change your life when you start thanking God for the hiccups and the setbacks and the mistakes and all the things. It'll start to mess you up. And you'll start to look like a church that looks very different than the chaotic world around you. And you'll start to be something that is unique and when the world says, why is that one organization different? And we'll say it's because of Jesus. And we'll start by giving him thanks. And today you might be here, you know, as we look at the passage, and you might be saying to yourself, this is completely foreign to me. I don't know anything about this. And I'd say, I need to teach you about the man who could make this not foreign. His name is Jesus. He saved my life and he can save yours too. And I would love to spend time talking with you about it. You can initiate that conversation in a moment when we offer an invitation. You can come down and you can grab me and say, I want to know more. And we'll take the necessary time to talk to you about all the pieces. But you might also be here and you might be saying, I've known Jesus my whole life and I've been sour for this season and I need to, I need to have a little more joy and I need to have a lot more thanks and I need to give God this due will. And I would just suggest that today is the day during this invitation where you can set that right or at least begin to set it right. So I'm going to invite Justin to come and I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. An opportunity to look to the scriptures to be reminded that this attitude of thanks is a heartbeat that doesn't just pound freely by itself, but it is wedded to all the other attitudes that we are supposed to be reflecting. And that we are separated from the gratitude that we owe you, that we should freely give you, because we are too much like the world and not enough like you. So today, Lord, I ask during this time of invitation that we could be more like you and less like the world, that we could look around and give thanks to all the different pieces all the different things for the fleas in our life. Lord, I also pray for those that might be here today and they might be saying, this is completely different than anything I've ever heard and I need to know more about it. And I'd ask that they would have the courage to come and take me or Brandon or Boyd by the hand and just say, I need to know more about you, more about Jesus. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen.